So when we check what our feeling of I is, it's very often uh, a self that is stable, that is enduring, that isn't produced by causes and conditions, it's just here. And that's in control. When we ask, what exactly is that self, that I? Then we want to check inside the aggregates, the body and mind, because those are the things that are closely related to the self. So we check, for example, with our body, we think of our sense faculties, the six sense faculties. Are they such a self? Are they an enduring self that doesn't change, that's in control, that doesn't depend on causes and conditions? Well, when we look at our sense faculties and also their objects, what they perceive, we see now all of these are always changing from one moment to the next, arising and ceasing, something new coming every moment. So they aren't suitable to call I. Similarly, all of our bodily organs changing every moment. something that is always in flux like that, is it going to produce happiness? No, not when it's under the control of ignorance. So none of our, the parts of our body are suitable to be a person, to be a a self that's enduring, that's in control. What about all the consciousnesses that arise due to the six kind of objects and the six kind of sense faculties? Are they enduring? Are they free of causes and conditions? Are they suitable to be a self that's in control? Especially look at the mental consciousness here. Is it something that endures from one moment to the next? 
all these consciousnesses are dependent on the objects and the faculties. And of course, contact is what connects them all. And when that cognition occurs, then there's also feelings. Are feelings suitable to be that kind of person? They really change a lot, not only moment to moment, but in gross ways. Happiness, one second, upset the next, neutral feeling the next. All dependent on other factors. So none of the the consciousnesses, none of the contacts, none of the feelings, none of them are suitable to be that kind of I that we feel we are. And then the whole group together also doesn't work because they're all changing too. And they're not a a unity, one whole thing, when our feeling of I is, you know, I am one thing sitting here. So when they look at the faculties, their objects, the consciousnesses, contact, feelings, all the other emotions and so on, None of them are suitable to be the kind of self that we feel we are. So the only thing we can conclude is that such a self doesn't exist. Now, if such a self like that doesn't exist, when we say, this is my body, these are my feelings, this is my opinion, my mind. Who's the owner of all of those? Who owns the aggregates? It feels like there's got to be some, some self that holds these five disparate things together to make them a person. But what is that? Can we find that? Now, when we've loosened that feeling of I, because we can't find it, then who can get praised and blamed? And who is inconvenienced by other sentient beings and who needs to have the final word in a discussion or get their way in a disagreement. So not being able to find that self, not being able to find the owner of all these things, that gives us a lot of freedom 
to really uh, open our heart and work for the benefit of sentient beings. Without fear. And so generate the bodhicitta. It's a slightly different way, isn't it? To meditate on the emptiness of the eye. Um, that's one of the ways done in the Pali tradition. Timely to that, I was able to watch um, how that appearance of the solid eye arose when I'm having this relationship with my heart and have this idea that my heart has actually its own consciousness and entity and is doing its own thing in, um, is really trying to trick me actually, is kind of hostile. <laughs> I mean, just as I was just realizing that I have this idea that both of these things are happening, that I am the one in charge here and my heart is not cooperating. And uh, <laughs> it's doing it deliberately. It is a person with its own mind too. <laughs> and, you know, seeing how that's subconsciously going on in the back of my mind and how, yeah. of course, absurd it is when I think about it, but it's given me a lot to meditate on. Just yeah. that meditation is very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so well, um, we're on page 151, the inner relationship of the long room topics. So analytical meditation on these lumrim topics is critical at all levels of the path. Okay. Yeah? We kind of read that as a sense. Oh, yeah, it's critical at all levels of the path. Okay, what's next? Okay? That, that means, you know, when you read that sentence and you take it in, it means that whatever level of the path we're on, we should be reflecting on the Lamrim meditations to some extent. <clears throat> In other words, we don't graduate from them and say, okay, I've mastered precious human life, I've mastered impermanence and death, I've mastered these things, and now I'm going to go on to the real stuff. Okay? Because if you, the more you get into the Lamrim topics, okay, the deeper they get, especially when you start bringing bodhicitta into your understanding of them, especially when you start bringing emptiness into your understanding of them, okay? Because we think we meditate on emptiness of, I don't know, you know, the table. Yeah. But what about the emptiness of the precious human life? What about the emptiness of the six disadvantages of samsara? What about the emptiness 
of the qualities of the Buddha. Okay, what about the emptiness of the four measurables? Okay, so when we really look, you know, all these topics, uh, they're, they're not just things to get us going on the path, but when we uh, contemplate them, we should bring emptiness in, we should bring bodhicitta in. Okay? Otherwise, our emptiness, yeah, like, you know, it's just the emptiness of the table and, you know, and the seeds and the sprouts, and, uh, and that's it. And everything else exists inherently. <laughs> okay? Yeah, and you, like I referred to a lot, how you see the uh, all the Geshis come and listen to His Holiness. And when he was teaching the 18 Lam Rims, they were all there and listening to precious human life and, you know, death and rebirth and, and things like this. Uh, even though they can teach the, top, the topics and those texts themselves, so I think it's saying something to us. Okay, so analytical meditation on these Lamrim topics is critical at all levels of the path. It transforms our mind by giving us an overview of the entire path and establishing the Buddhist worldview firmly within us. Okay, so that thing of establishing the Buddhist worldview firmly in us, that is so critical because you may ordain or you may go on a long retreat or whatever, but if you don't have that worldview, when you run into difficulties in your practice or when garbage comes up in your mind and you get confused and unhappy, if you don't have that worldview, you're going to ditch the whole thing. Yeah? Because, you know, it, the awareness of rebirth, of cause, of karma, and its effects of what samsara is, you know, if we don't really believe that, then when we have a problem, you know, we start missing, you know, the person we were in love with 15 years ago, or, you know, we get angry at some relative. And then all of a sudden, it's like, then the Dharma seems to be the problem. Yeah? If I, if I weren't ordained, then I wouldn't have this problem. If I wasn't in retreat, then all this stuff wouldn't be coming up and disturbing me. Yeah? And so then we, instead of seeing that the, the problem is the afflictions in our mind, our craving for happiness is so strong that we just follow it. You know, and it's the Lam Rim meditation that points out to us 
the defects of our craving for happiness. Yeah? Okay. So wanting happiness, that's fine. Okay. But craving happiness is another thing. Okay. His Holiness always says all sentient beings want to have happiness and not suffering. That's true. But when we crave it, and I've got to have it, and I've got to be in good situations, and I've got to have happy feelings all the time, I can't endure any unhappy feelings. And this situation, you know, is driving me crazy. Yeah. I can't stay in retreat one day longer because I can't handle the food or whatever it is. Okay? Then, yeah, we see, you know, our mind never thinks of the disadvantages of craving. Yeah? All we think are the benefits of getting the object that we're craving. (laughs) Yeah? And in the long term, yeah, then, we, you know, that is a problem because we give up the practice and go for the immediate pleasure. Okay, so, um, yeah, it's, it's really important. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Buddha, having established the Buddhist worldview firmly within us, engenders great conviction in the path and a correct motivation for spiritual practice. Okay, so those two are two really important qualities to have if we're really going to progress, is to be have great, you know, conviction that brings strong refuge and uh, to have a correct motivation because yeah. again, if we don't have that, you know, those two things, then when our mind, you know, goes south, and any small thing can make our mind go south, can't it? Yeah. Then, then we become lost. Yeah. So while other forms of meditation may make us feel good in the moment, if they do not increase our understanding of the undesirable nature of cyclic existence and our wish to be free from it, our motivation and enthusiasm for practice will flag. Okay, so, you know, other meditations can really make us feel good. Yeah, I mean, it's nice sitting there and visualizing the Buddha and all this blissful lights coming in. Yeah, and you say, oh, this is really nice. Like, I could sit here for a long time. Yeah, or you you rid your mind of all thoughts and you do blank-minded meditation. Yeah, okay, there's no thoughts, you know. I don't hate anybody anymore. I'm not obsessed. I just stay in nothingness, yeah. Then it may make you feel good at that time, But if it doesn't build up our wisdom, yeah, by by really uh, getting it so that we believe, 
uh, in the whole Buddhist worldview and what samsara is, what nirvana is, how the four truths function. Yeah. So if we, you know, the aim of our meditation isn't to feel good. Yeah, temporarily. Of course, if you, if you do a meditation session and you feel good afterwards, fantastic, that's great. Okay? But if we evaluate the benefit of all of our meditations by if we come out feeling blissful, and peaceful, that's not the right way to evaluate our meditations. Of course, if we're coming out of our meditation and we feel depressed and we're upset and angry, then we also aren't doing something right in our meditation. But sometimes we come out of our meditation uh, very sober, you know? It's just like, oh... Now I see things more clearly. You know, the giddiness, the fascination isn't there. And it's like, oh, okay, this is samsara. This is what my situation is. And this is the path, and this is how I can practice it. Okay, so the mind is much more sober. You know, it's not like, oh, I have all this blissful light. Yeah. But that soberness, you know, is, uh, is a sign of wisdom developing in our minds. Yeah. Because we're not getting tricked. We're not getting infatuated over the seeming pleasures of samsara. Mm-hmm. Because those pleasures, you know, are they suitable to be a self? Yeah, they're impermanent, they're transitory, they depend on causes and conditions that we can't control. Okay, so when you do the meditations with the light coming and all, that's wonderful, but but really have in mind that it's, you know, know what you're purifying. Think of specific blockages you may have to understanding different parts of the Dharma or by or blockages, resistance you have to certain points in the Dharma. And, you know, when you're doing your request, really request the Buddhas and Bodhisattva, you know, please inspire me to to, you know, dissolve these difficulties and this hindrance and this resistance. Yeah? And so then when the light comes, you know, then fine, feel blissful, of course. But, you know, really, um, you know, have a sense of what you, what qualities you want to diminish in yourself and what qualities you want to increase so that also when you think of the light coming from the Buddha, you know, sometimes you think of it purifying, sometimes you think of it bringing uh, realizations and developing good qualities. And so then, you know, you specifically think of those things you want to develop. Okay? Yeah? Yeah, 
I hope you understand this correctly. I'm not saying don't feel happy when you meditate. But I'm saying don't crave that and don't judge your meditation based on that. And don't go around talking to other people about it. (laughs) Because then it just becomes another ego thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in certain circumstances, you can talk about it with your teacher, with your Dharma friends, but not as a topic of conversation, chit-chat. Okay, analytical meditation makes our motivation strong and stable. And with such motivation, our analytical and stabilizing meditation on emptiness will bear fruit. We will be able to enter the Vajrayana, practice it correctly, and attain awakening. Okay. The order of the topics in the stages of the path are skillfully arranged to gradually lead your mind to deeper understandings. So try to meditate on them in order. So as you do it, uh, be it the standard order or the slightly revised order in this series, you know, you can really see how one meditation sets the stages for the next understanding, okay? So as you're learning them, it's good to go in that order. But once you have a good understanding of them, you know, it's really helpful to think, to to look at how the later meditations help your understandings of of the previous ones. Okay. And so uh, that, that, of course, is very, very helpful. Okay, because it isn't just, oh, I have a precious human life, I'm free from the hell realms, I'm free from other ghost realms, I'm free from the animal realms, and yeah, yeah. But it's like when you do bodhicitta meditation and you get some feeling for what a totally remarkable quality that must be to have, then when you think, oh, I have a precious human life, and the conditions to learn about bodhicitta and meditate on bodhicitta, then the feeling of the value of your precious human life, you know, skyrockets because, you know, it isn't just, okay, well, I'm not burning in hell, that's nice, but it's like, you know, I have the chance to develop bodhicitta. And... Also, then, when you think about not burning in hell or not being an ignorant animal, because you've really had some understanding of, you know, of rebirth, then meditating on those points really affects you, too. Yeah. Because you think, wow, you know, if I were born like one of the kitties, they're all here. they all here. Mudita is here from upstairs. Yeah, so they're they're all here. How much can they develop bodhicitta? Yeah. They're all quiet. Nobody's saying, I want to be a bodhisattva. 
they're saying, you be a bodhisattva and feed me. <laughs> okay. Of course, if you face a certain problem and know that a particular meditation will help calm your mind, do that meditation even if it isn't in sequence. Okay, so don't make yourself rigid in the Lamrim meditations, yeah? Someday if you wake up in a bad mood, then you know, okay, I need to do the meditation on love. You know, someday you wake up and your mind is just like all over the place, and then you know, oh, today I need to do the meditation on impermanence. Okay, so you you also, um, uh, you know, choose the meditation according to, to where your mind is at that particular day. So repeatedly cycle through the sequence of meditations. Grounding yourself in the initial meditations will facilitate understanding the later ones. Going directly to the advanced meditations is not helpful for our overall development. Okay, because we're building the roof before we build the footings. Once you have... Actually, we're building a roof before we even have an architectural plan. Yeah, if you don't know the whole, all the the stages of the path and how things fit together, you don't have your architectural plan, and yet you're going out there building the roof. Okay. Um, once you have a heartfelt understanding of one topic, don't just leave it be and go on to the next. Like, okay, got that. But, you know, continue to review your understanding and stabilize your experience, even though your focus has shifted to the next topic. So this is why we do the glance meditations. Okay? This is why they recommend them. You know, the 37 uh, practices of bodhisattvas, the glance meditation in the Lama Chopa, the foundation of all good qualities, the three principal aspects of the path, the uh, four um, abandoning the four clingings, you know, all these kinds of Lamrim uh, texts that are short. This is why we do them uh, in our meditation every day. Yeah, and uh, Lama Zopa Rinpoche says that uh, it just you know reading this every day and you know even thinking about it for a short time uh, creates more merit, is more beneficial for your mind than offering billions of universes of jewels to all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and you can really see why because. Uh, if you can do the glance meditation and every day remind yourself of these topics, you're planting the seeds, you know, and they're going in. And, and then, you know, hopefully when different things happen in your life, one of those verses will pop up and, oh, this is how I need to think at this time. I once... Uh, was asking Geshe, um, you know, one of my teachers, Geshe Sander mentioned about how he felt about teaching at the library where you have this constant flow of people 
you know, there's a few people who attend everything, who live there uh, year-round, but not many. And people come for one day or one week, or they come one day, they don't come the next, you know, and just perpetual thing of all these young Westerners, yeah, and just, you know, on their trip through India and like, let's go check this out and see what it's like. And I thought, wow, you know, you have somebody of his quality teaching in that kind of circumstance. And I asked him how he felt about it, and he said, um, I, I, you know, that he's planting seeds in people's minds, and that he's very hopeful that when they return back to their own country, that something of what they heard in one of his classes will come up in their mind when they need it and help them. Yeah? And so he felt that what he was doing was quite useful. Yeah? That process of planting seeds. Uh, and Geshe uh, Jambatekchok, I should say Kenzer Jambatekchok, um, when he went, when he was asked to go to uh, England to teach, yeah, again, all these Westerners, you know, young Westerners who, you know, don't know anything, who ask all these strange questions. Um, and, uh, and he's, you know, he's thinking, why, why does Ageshe Larampa have to go and teach these people who don't know anything. Yeah. When you think about it, you know, just even, yeah, why does he need to go and that? I mean, why can't somebody else go? Yeah. Why does Ageshe Larampa go? And <laughs> then after he taught for a couple of years, yeah, and he dealt with the people, then he said, oh, now I understand why Ageshe Larampa has to go. Yeah? Because the people ask questions that uh, Tibetans would never even think about or ask or anything like that. And uh, people have problems that uh, they need Dharma advice on. Okay? Mm -hmm. So I thought that was quite an interesting story. Mm -hmm. And if you look, how often, you know, like nowadays, His Holiness is mostly doing either science events or public talks. And he's seeing so many groups of people who come to Dharamsala, you know, when they have an interview with this group or that group for an hour or two in the morning. And he says almost the same thing, you know? And like, you think, but wait, this is his holiness, you know? <laughs> what else could he be teaching? But I think it's the same thing. He wants to make this connection, you know, now in his elder years with as many sentient beings as he possibly can. Yeah? And to plant those seeds of Dharma in as many sentient beings as he can, hoping that they will ripen either in this life by people thinking out 
seeking out more teachings or in future lives. Yeah. And then leaving uh, it to all the other teachers to really guide these people after that. Okay. The meditations of the three levels of practitioners are intertwined and they cross-fertilize one another. Our understanding of the earlier topics sets the stage for the later ones and our understanding of the later ones enriches our experience of the earlier ones. For example, precious human life appears early in the Lamrim. But the more that we have a feeling for the bodhicitta meditations, the more we will see our human life as precious because it provides us the opportunity to develop bodhicitta. Okay. While the perfection of fortitude is explained in the path of the advanced practitioner, we must learn and practice fortitude from the very beginning because we must lessen our anger in order to abandon destructive actions. Okay, So if we meditate on karma and we want to abandon destructive actions that come from getting angry, then we need to meditate on fortitude in order to do that. Okay, so even though one is comes early, one the karma comes early, and the fortitude comes later. You know, you've got to bring it in. Okay. Same with generosity. You know, the easiest way to create merit is through generosity. Yeah, and so if you meditate on karma and you want to create merit then, yeah, the different kinds of generosity are things that uh, if you meditate on and you know about them, then they really help you. Some Lamrim topics come up repeatedly in the sequence each time we explore them in more depth. Ethical conduct first appears in the topic of karma at the initial level. It appears again as the higher training in ethical conduct on the intermediate level, and again on the advanced level with the bodhisattva's perfection of ethical conduct. Each time our understanding of what to practice and what to abandon is refined. Okay, so there we are in all three levels of the path. You have ethical conduct which means you think about karma, yeah. which, you, which means you think about how to be generous, how to abandon harm, how to control your, your anger, yeah. which means that you need to meditate on bodhicitta, yeah. and which means that you also need to meditate on emptiness. So you see how these things, they, they really kind of interrelate. After gaining a firm understanding of the Lamrim through study, reflection, and meditation, some practitioners may wish to direct more energy to developing serenity through perfecting their stabilizing meditation. Others may wish to focus more on the meditations regarding the 37 harmonies with awakening, 
while others may prefer to emphasize insight into emptiness or a tantric practice. Okay, these decisions are best made in consultation with a spiritual mentor. Okay, so again, when you do that, doesn't mean that you stop the lamrim. Yeah, your lamrim always serves as to, to stabilize your mind when you're doing these other meditations. Okay, so that's talking about the meditation session itself. Now we're going to talk about between meditation sessions. Because what happens in between meditation sessions is as important as what happens in meditation sessions. Because what you do in the break time will influence how you do in the session. Yeah, and what you do in the session will influence what you do in the break time. You know, so, I mean, a very gross example is in the break time, if you go and listen to rap music, when you sit down to meditate, you're going to be rapping. Yeah? So, you know, it's going to influence you. If you, in the break time, talk a lot and you're joking and this kind of thing, uh, when you go back in meditation, then you may be going, oh, I wonder if I joke too much. I wonder if those people think that I'm fun to be with, or I wonder if they think I'm too silly. You know, and then all of a sudden you, you get all worried about what other people think about you. Okay? So, uh, so what we do in the break time really influences, yeah? If, if we eat too much in the break time, we sit down to meditate, we're drowsy. Or even we stay awake, we go, we feel, oh, darn, I did it again, you know. I was uncontrolled and I ate too much. Yeah, now I have a stomach ache or now whatever it is. Okay, so it becomes a distraction. Our meditation sessions and our daily life activities flow together, one following the other without pause. To indicate this relationship, the great masters called our daily life activities break times between meditation sessions. Okay, both, so it's not like it's non-meditation session. It's like there's meditation sessions and in between them you take some breaks. Okay. Okay, so both uh, break times and sessions play a role in our spiritual life. Meditation sessions give us the opportunity to practice in a more focused way. Daily life activities provide the chance to test how well we have integrated the meditation topics into our lives. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I had such a great meditation on loving kindness. I feel so good. Then you go, you know, in your break time, and it's like, who walked in without wiping their feet and tracked in mud? Oh, you know, and then we get angry. Yeah. You know the story about the meditator who went up to the mountains for years and meditated on love and compassion and then went down to the village to get some supplies and 
somebody insulted to him and he got so angry. Yeah. <laughs> We're kind of like that, aren't we? <laughs> I told you about my retreat after I, I left Italy, you know, and every session, okay, meditating on fortitude, calming myself down. Then in the break time, one moment of thinking about Sam and I was off. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We may meditate on fortitude in the morning, but the real test is when we have to deal with a difficult person. Actually, it should say, with a person we think is difficult. <laughs> Observing the thoughts and emotions that arise in our minds during the day will give us an idea of the qualities we need to strengthen in order to counteract the afflictions that arise frequently in our minds. Spiritual practice does not occur only when we recite a text or meditate, but also while we walk down the street, clean our room, and interact with others. Okay. Dharma practice involves watching our mind and keeping it in a wholesome state no matter what we are doing. We can practice anywhere and at any times. Okay. So uh, in the Pali tradition, they really emphasize during the break time uh, having mindfulness and introspective awareness on uh, what our body is doing in the four positions, sitting, standing, lying down, and walking, okay? And so to be aware of, you know, how am I moving through space? Why am I going to a place? What am I looking at while I'm walking there? When I'm sitting here, am I sitting properly, or am I, you know, like this? Am I looking around while I'm sitting? Yeah, or am I, am I focusing on what I need to be focusing on at that moment? Okay, and so really developing that mindfulness based on what the body is doing. Um, that's very good, you know, in terms of, of helping us uh, tame our behavior a lot, yeah? We also want to be aware of what's going on in our mind, okay? And also how what our body is doing influences what's going on in our mind, okay? So specifically with the body, when we spend time looking around at other objects, then our mind forms opinions about all those things. So, you know, we have this precept not to look in other people's bowls, or in their plates, yeah. Very interesting. Watch what goes on in your mind when you look in somebody else's bowl or somebody else's plate, yeah. What kind of thoughts are there, yeah. Why are they taking so much? Oh, they don't eat very much. Are they anorexic? <laughs> Oh, they took a lot of this. They're very selfish because then other people don't get to eat as much. I better eat quickly so I can get back 
and take more because some of these people are real pigs. <laughs> yeah, you don't think like that? Come on. Yeah? Maybe you're more polite. No. <laughs> it's worse during peach season. It's the worst. Oh, yeah. Peach season when everybody wants to get the peach cobbler. No, the, peaches. the what? The real, the real peaches. Oh, I hardly ever see those. I think you, I think you freeze them or cook them or do something. I hardly ever see the real peaches. Yeah. So maybe that's the point, huh? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But so, so you begin to see when you don't watch what your senses are doing, what your, you know, your sense faculties are doing, then they contact different objects and all these different thoughts arise. When you walk down the street, yeah, do you look in the windows of the, the shops and the stores? Yeah. Because if you're walking down the street and you're looking in the stores, yeah, or you're driving down the road and you're reading the billboards, yeah, that's going to make certain kind of thoughts arise, isn't it? Yeah, and then before we know it, our, off, our mind is off somewhere else on some other topic. Hmm? Okay, what we do during the break time between meditation sessions influences our meditation sessions. For this reason, great practitioners advise moderation in food and sleep, guarding the sense doors, and acting with introspective awareness while engaging in daily life activities. Okay, so food, sleep, guarding the sense doors, food sleep, okay, and then activities that should be guarding the sense doors, okay. Okay, so food. So what we eat influences our mental state. The food should be nutritious and easily digestible. The food should be nutritious and easily digestible. And it should also be what I like. <laughs> we should eat a moderate amount. Eating too little, uh, eating, eating too much makes the mind drowsy. Eating too little makes the body weak. In middle stages of meditation, Kamala Shila encourages practitioners to have a vegetarian diet. In general, this is conducive for being clear-minded when meditating. Although, depending on someone's physical condition, taking meat may be necessary. Okay. But they say that when you eat meat, you pick up the vibration of the animal. You know? Something like that. Drinking alcohol, taking recreational drugs, or misusing prescription drugs are out of the question if we want to concentrate the mind. And smoking is similarly to be abandoned. 
So uh, in the Theravada tradition, they smoke. In, in the Mahayana, they say that smoking attracts negative energy, negative spirits. And you can understand why. It's like, bleh. Yeah. Okay. If attachment to food arises, as it can easily, when we limit other distractions, you know, and that's really true, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of normally, yeah, not, you don't think about attachment to food. Then you come here, and it's like, it's the last sense pleasure left. Yeah. And you really focus on those brownies that, you know, that were there for lunch. But it was a really small thing of brownies, wasn't it? But how many brownies can you eat without overeating brownies and then feeling, ugh, a lot? <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. Okay, so if attachment to food arises, as it can easily do when we limit other distractions, think of what the food looks like after it is chewed and after it is digested. Think of the excrement that food produces. Okay, that kind of makes your greed for food, you know, it moderates it a bit. Contemplate how much of our precious human life is involved in procuring, preparing, and eating food, as well as cleaning up afterwards. Some people spend hours discussing the foods they like and planning what to eat, yet we often hardly taste the food because we are talking to a friend or reading while eating. The pleasure of eating ends quickly, and sometimes we feel worse from having overeaten. Okay. So really, when you think of how much time of our precious human life, you know, having to go shopping and get the food and bring it back and put it in the fridge and the cupboards and plan your meals and take the stuff out and chop it up and look for a good recipe and put it in the pan and correlate how when you cook everything because they all have different cooking times and then getting it on the table and you know at the right time so that it's not too cold because the person giving the BBC has spoken so long or it's not too hot because you know they didn't speak very long at all, and you're burning your tongue, and then you have to clean up, and, I mean, it takes up a lot of time, okay? Eating and then snacking, yeah? And all of this, so much time, you know? Okay, and then, like I said, you know, usually we're talking to somebody, so we hardly even... Uh, taste the food. Uh, or we're reading when we're eating. But I like, there's one Zen master who was eating while he was reading. 
And his disciple came in and said, Master, I thought when you eat, you eat, and when you read, you read. So what are you doing? And he says, when I eat and read, I eat and read. <laughs> yeah, so that's me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Offering our food to the three jewels before we eat is meritorious and allows us to pause and reflect. In the Chinese tradition, five points are recited before eating and are contemplated while eating. Okay, so I'll read these out, although you know them, so that it's on the recording. I contemplate all the causes and conditions and the kindness of others by which I have received this food. And that's actually remarkable when you think of all the causes and conditions that we created to have the karma, to have the food, and the causes and conditions and people involved with growing the food and transporting it and cooking it. It's really remarkable. I can contemplate my own practice, constantly trying to improve it. In the Chinese, this line says, I something to the effect of, I contemplate whether I deserve to eat this meal. Okay? Meaning, you know, have I practiced, you know, because people are giving me this food, so have I done my part of the deal by practicing well so that I deserve to eat it? I, I change that wording because sometimes the word deserve can be very... Uh, uh, it can trigger a lot of things in people. But, you know, the, the meaning is really to check. Have I just been acting flippantly and wasting my time? Or have I been doing my part of the bargain uh, when people offer this food of, of keeping my precepts and practicing well? I contemplate my mind cautiously guarding it from wrongdoing, greed, and other defilements. Okay, so guarding the mind when we're eating and also in the break time. Mm -hmm. I contemplate this food, treating it as wondrous medicine to nourish my body. If we think like that, that the food is medicine, then we're not going to get so fussy about whether we like the taste or not. Okay, because we're thinking, you know, I'm eating in order to nourish my body. And why am I nourishing my body? The next one says, I contemplate the aim of Buddhahood, accepting and consuming this food in order to accomplish it. So that's why we're nourishing our body. Okay? And so that fifth one is really emphasizing, uh, you know, that, that we, we have to do our part of the, this exchange. We can't just expect uh, food to show up on the table and uh, as we go merrily around doing what we want. Okay. Yeah. That to, to really respect the faith uh, in the three jewels that other people have and how that is what is motivating them to, uh, to offer this food to us. Mm -hmm. 
In the Tibetan tradition, verses of homage and offering are commonly recited before the main meal. Okay, so if you want more um, uh, information on the on both these five contemplations, what I'm about to read now, and everything else about food, read the Compassionate Kitchen because it explains uh, the meaning of all the the recitations it explains how you know how to think when you're buying the food how to think after you've eaten the the food the whole get and caboodle so the book's quite good for explaining all of that okay so here are the verses said in the tibetan tradition so the first three are are paying homage to the three jewels first one is the buddha great compassionate protector all-knowing teacher Field of merit and good qualities, vast as an ocean. To the Tathagata I bow. Uh Through purity, and the next one is uh, homage to the Dharma. Through purity, freeing from attachment. Through virtue, freeing from the unfortunate states. Unique, supreme, ultimate reality. To the Dharma that is peace, I bow. Okay, so purity... So realizing emptiness that will free us from attachment and craving through virtue, then that frees us from lower rebirths. Yeah. And then the real Dharma is the unique, supreme, ultimate reality. That is peace, that is nirvana. Okay. Then having freed themselves, showing the path to freedom too, well established in the trainings, the holy field endowed with good qualities to the Sangha, I bow. Okay, so that's um, especially thinking of the Arya Sangha, those who have realized emptiness. Yeah, so they show us the, to the path, the freeding of freedom. <laughs> and they're well established in the three higher trainings. Yeah. So it's not just well-established in the training, it's trainings. And the holy field endowed with good qualities to the sangha. So that means the sangha from the fundamental vehicle and the sangha of the universal vehicle. I bow. Okay, then we offer the food to the supreme teacher, the precious Buddha, to the supreme refuge, the holy precious dharma, to the Supreme Guides, the Precious Sangha, to all objects of refuge, we make this offering. Okay. Then the next verse, so that one was offering food. The next one is actually kind of a dedication verse. But we always say it here anyway. So this one, uh, yeah, um, yeah, you can see how it's dedicating. May we and all those around us never be separated from the three jewels in our our, all of our lives, so we're dedicated from that for that to happen. Okay, may we always have the opportunity to make offerings to them. So really appreciate our opportunity to make offerings. Yeah, we usually think of our opportunity to receive offerings. Yeah, but it's also, you know, an opportunity to make offerings because when you receive the offerings. Your virtuous karma is getting consumed. When you make offerings, you're creating that virtuous karma. 
And may we continuously receive their blessings and inspiration to progress along the path. So always have that connection with them. Okay, then the next uh, verse, I think it's um, this one they do in the Pali tradition, and I think it also comes in uh, one of Nagarjuna's texts. By seeing this food as medicine, I will consume it without attachment or complaint. without attachment or complaint. This is a deep practice. It is. It's a tall order, isn't it? Okay. So we're not eating it to increase my arrogance because I look good, my strength, because I can get big muscles or my good looks, you know. Or whatever, because you know when you think about it, many people eat, you know, for these kind of reasons, and especially, um, I think in ancient times where food wasn't so plentiful. Yeah, being plump was a sign of wealth, so people wanted to be wealth, uh, look wealthy. They that was a sign of looking good. Okay. Then you could get a bit arrogant about it because your family was wealthy or because you look good. Yeah. Okay. So we're not eating for any of those reasons, but solely to sustain my life. Yeah. And sustaining my life so I can practice the Dharma. At the conclusion of a meal, Tibetan monastics make offerings to the hungry ghosts and recite homages to the Buddhas. We then dedicate for the welfare of those who offered our food. Okay, so here are the verses. You know, um, this doesn't have the uh, the preta offering in it. Okay, that was too much to explain in this book. Okay, so may all those who offered me food attain the happiness of total peace. May all those who offered me drink, who served me who received me, who honored me, or made offerings to me, attain happiness, that is total peace. So instead of taking all these people for granted, instead of grumbling, didn't give us exactly what we like, we're praying for them, you know, for their, their well-being. And the happiness that is total peace is, is uh, liberation and full awakening. Okay, so those are the people who are kind to me. May all those who scold me, who make me unhappy, hit me, attack me with weapons, or do things up to the point of killing me, yeah, or who vote not to have witnesses at the impeachment trial, or who think that, you know, that a president should be a king or a, or an autocrat or, you know, people who yeah, have different political views than I do, who are building that nutty wall, yeah? So may they fully awaken. May they attain the happiness of awakening. May they fully awaken to the unsurpassed, perfectly accomplished state of Buddhahood. So I am not going to hang on to my anger. I'm not going to hang on to my judgmental mind. 
I'm going to realize yeah, that they're under the influence of afflictions and karma, that I created the karma to be in this situation with them. And so the only thing to do is to wish all of us well. Okay. If I can get distracted for a moment about the wall. So I think, uh, you know, they found that some smugglers have cut holes in the walls and driven uh, trucks through. They've found... (laughs) There was one video of people scaling the walls and having a folding uh, ladder and hooking it up so their friends could come up after them and then jumping on the other side, on the other side of the wall. And there's a photo. This was, I don't know, forget where it was, of... There was a windstorm, and part of the wall fell down. <laughs> yeah. There is a big, long piece of the wall just blew over into Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> and he is now saying in rallies that the Mexicans are paying for the wall which they're not. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. By the merit of offering food, may they have a good complexion, magnificence, and strength. May they find foods having hundreds of tastes and live with the food of samadhi. Okay, so may they always have physical nourishment, but... Samadhi is the best way to nourish the body and mind. Yeah. And they say that people who, the whole Chulen practice is based on people who, who have samadhi, who don't eat, need to uh, eat very much in retreat. By the merit of offering drink, may their afflictions, hunger, and thirst be pacified. May they possess good qualities such as generosity and take a rebirth without any sickness or thirst. Okay, so we're dedicating for all the people who offered food to us, yeah, and everybody involved in the whole offering, pro- the whole process of food being grown and, and winding up on our plate. The one who gives, the one who receives, and the generous action are not to be observed as truly existent. By giving with impartiality, may the benefactors attain perfection. Okay, so meditating on the emptiness of the agent, the action, and the object. By the power of being generous, may they become Buddhas for the benefit of sentient beings. And through generosity, may all the beings who have not been liberated by previous conquerors be liberated. So everybody... By the merit of this generosity, may the Naga kings, gods having faith in the Dharma. Here it usually, um, they usually give the names, the Tibetan prayer, they give the names of a couple of uh, Dharma kings, yeah, Dharma, Naga kings, okay? 
and in place of um, I, leaders support religious freedom. That was I, I switched that out. They had um, something like the king and the you know the ministers or something like that. Okay, and others living in the area. So all the people living around us, yeah, human beings, turkeys. Yeah. Um, may they all live long, enjoy good health and prosperity, and attain lasting happiness. Due to this virtue, may all beings complete the collections of merit and wisdom. May they attain the two Buddha bodies resulting from merit and wisdom. That's from... Um, Ratnavali, precious garland. Sleep allows the body to rest, which makes it more serviceable for engaging in virtuous activities. Sleeping in moderation produces good results. Too much sleep makes the mind dull, and too little is also not good. Sleeping during the middle part of the night is advised, as is rising early. Okay. It is best to sleep in the lion position. Okay, it's the position that the Buddha was in when he passed away. On your right side, with the left leg on top of the right uh, leg, your right hand under your right cheek. They say if you can block the nostril with um, your ring finger. Actually, yeah, just continue to breathe. <laughs> Okay. Um, so this helps to maintain maintain mindfulness during sleep, and to prevent nightmares and non-virtuous dreams. Okay. So sleep is a changeable mental factor. It becomes virtuous when we fall asleep with a positive thought or intention. Meditating, reading a Dharma book, or contemplating a wholesome topic before going to sleep helps us to do that. As does thinking, I will sleep to rest my body and mind so that I can wake up refreshed and continue practicing the Dharma. Okay, so to, you know, dedicate the merit, you know, right before you go to bed or after you crawl under the covers to, um, you know, really think of why you're thinking and, ha you know, have your motivation clear. So that that's all quite, you know, important. Although, you know, sometimes you just feel like, I want to get to the bed, and then you go, plop! Oh. Okay, so that that's not a particular Dharma mind. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of good to, to, you know, try and put some dharma in our mind before we go to sleep. If an affliction arises as you are falling asleep or when you are dreaming, notice it and let it go. Do not indulge in thoughts of attachment or anger while falling asleep. If you do, those thoughts and images will occupy your mind for many hours while you sleep making your sleep non-virtuous. In addition, your mind will be restless or in a bad mood when you wake up. So we know that from our own experience, don't we, that that happens. When you lie down, imagine the Buddha sitting on your pillow and lay your head in his lap. 
Visualize very gentle, peaceful light flowing from the Buddha into you as you fall asleep. This will prevent your sleep from being too heavy and enable you to awake without grogginess. Make a determination to arise when you are rested without when you are rested, not arrested. <laughs> uh, when you are not when you are rested, okay, without oversleeping. Okay. Also generate the intention to maintain a wholesome mental state the next day. Because if you generate that kind of intention, when you go to bed, you wake up with a much more positive attitude and, and, yeah, and your day goes better. The Flower Ornament Sutra, that's the Avatamsaka Sutra, contains verses that bodhisattvas contemplate as they fall asleep, dream, and wake up. May all sentient beings attain the dimension of reality of a Buddha. This is the aspiration of a bodhisattva when going to sleep. Okay, dimension of reality, probably the dharmadhatu. May all sentient beings realize the dreamlike nature of things. This is the aspiration of a bodhisattva while dreaming. May all beings awake from the sleep, awake from the sleep of ignorance. This is the aspiration of a bodhisattva when waking up. May all beings attain the Buddha's form bodies. This is the aspiration of a bodhisattva when getting up. Those are nice, aren't they? Yeah, nice to practice when you're falling asleep, you know, falling asleep. Dreaming, waking, getting up. If you have received empowerments and instructions in highest yoga tantra, do the practice of transforming sleep into the truth body, dreaming into the enjoyment body, and waking up into the emanation body. Training in this practice now is of great benefit at the time of death. Okay. So we'll stop here. Any remaining questions? Yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, being vegan? And if that, the uh, dairy products or things Mm -hmm. do that, does that energy carry into your body too, you think? Uh, no, not that I know of. And in fact, Buddha, in Buddhism and in ancient India, uh, dairy things are considered very uh, like pure substances. Often when you, you make offerings, they say the three sweets and the three whites. And the three whites are yogurt, milk, and butter. So they're seen as you know, very nice things to offer, yeah. So uh, in Buddhism, they don't, I've never heard the discussion of being vegan, yeah. Being vegetarian, yes, okay. Uh, The whole thing about the way animals are being treated, you know, in ancient times, most they didn't have factories like they do now with the animals. Yeah, so that wasn't a point in in uh, 
in their thinking. What about the, uh, the meditation on the dissolution of the body at the time of death when you're going to sleep at night? Does that mm-hmm. garner any? Because um, I've been trying to work on my uh, terror of dying. Mm-hmm. You know, is that is that helpful going to sleep? I do it during the day while I yeah. do one of my sessions for like yeah. 15 minutes. Yeah, it's nice to think about when you're going to sleep. And in the same way, um, you know, to, to do the visualizations of the different stages and, and set your motivation. I mean, before we die, you know, if you have the wherewithal and the time, you know, set your motivation. And, you know, I'm going to think about emptiness. And then I'm going to come out of the intermediate stage uh, motivated by compassion. Yeah. And so Bodhisattva is going to come out, you know, in the emanation body. But we can think, you know, emanation body or no, I want my next life to be motivated by compassion. And I think that reduces the fear of dying, too, because you think, you know, right before you even go into that process of, you know, I'm going to come out the other end of it um, with a compassionate heart towards other living beings and enthusiasm to be able to benefit them. And when I wake up in my next life, may that be my first thought. So you mentioned um, using the later topics in the Lamrim to go back and reflect on the earlier topics, such as the emptiness of the Buddha's qualities or the precious human life. And I don't know how that would work. Um, Sometimes I get Mm -hmm. really mixed up when I um, think about the emptiness of other sentient beings and my compassion really drops. Yeah. Because I think they're not real. So what am I having compassion for? Yeah, that issue comes up a lot when you, in the Bodhisattva trainings, you know, if everybody's empty, then there's nobody to benefit. And we go to that extreme of thinking uh, what's happening is we're confusing emptiness with total non-existence. Yeah. And just because things are empty doesn't mean that they don't exist at all. They exist. They exist dependently. So we definitely need to care about sentient beings, even though they're empty. And the fact that they're empty means that uh, they can change, which means that they can, their mental state can improve and they can attain Buddhahood. If they were inherently existent, then they could never become Buddhas. Then the whole thing is useless. Yeah. Okay. Okay.